His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the world's most creative chefs on a lifetime's mission to discover the secrets behind what we eat and why we eat it. And now he's invited us all along to join him on the adventure. My name's Jay Taylor, I'm Heston's long-time TV producer and your host for this journey to the centre of food. And on today's podcast, we are stepping out of the kitchen and across the Great Divide to the front of house as we explore the fascinating world of service. From Michelin stars to Basil Fawlty and everything in between, we're going to be exploring the power of presentation when it comes to your dining experience. So without further ado, let's meet the man who always comes with a leather-bound menu and some fancy French writing, Heston Blumenthal. Hello, Heston. Bonjour. Oh, bonjour. How are you, my little escargot? Monsieur Taylor and Monsieur James James. Hello, James. Welcome, welcome here. Bonjour tout le monde. Bonjour. Yes, monge too. Bonjour. <laughs> at this point, at this point in, in my uh, in my experience, the waiter or, or barman switches to English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's because we say to them loudly in English, do you have a menu? <laughs> yes. I want some I like food. You speak slowly and more loudly. It's like you're talking to older people hard of hearing when you somehow you think that the language barrier will get sorted by that. I had a friend who very embarrassingly would also affect the accent of everyone he was speaking to, but doing English. So we'd go to a Thai restaurant. He yeah. would speak loudly in English with a Thai accent, which was yes. <laughs> just awfully yeah. embarrassing I, on all levels. And it's hard enough for them to I understand. Got, I got a quick confession. I did that on a, on a stag do in Yorkshire. I switched into my Yorkshire accent until people started to ask me to not speak anymore <laughs> in the group because we were getting in trouble. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, it's funny, yes, they just, could you stop that, please? <laughs> You're offending the locals. Uh, gentlemen, we have had correspondence from out there, from our right. wonderful listeners. We always, as we say, appreciate this hugely, everyone getting in touch. Um, we have recently done an episode all about crisps, or crip, crisps, as you said, they crisps. said in, said in, crisps in France. And uh, turns out we have listeners in South Africa which is very exciting, wow. uh, much more glamorous than our homes. We're all stuck at the moment. Uh, this comes from Fern Osterwick. Ost- Fern Osterwick. That's my best African accent. Talk about doing offensive okay. foreign accents. There we go. Um, she said, hey, Heston, Jay and James, love listening to the podcast every, uh, every week. We have a local brand of crisps in South Africa called Simba Chips. One of their most popular flavours is Mrs. Ball's Chutney, which is an institution here. In fact, all South African shops in the UK stock Mrs. Ball's Chutney from our expats because it's one of the things everyone misses from homes. And we also have chilli biltong flavour. Every Even vegetarians secretly eat biltong here. Biltong is life, she says, with an exclamation mark. Every yeah. single mall has a biltong shop. You can drive all over the country, and no matter where you go, you'll see a sign for biltong on the side of the highway, and they're literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's Afrikaans for dried sausage. I didn't know that. And every butcher here has their own recipe. <clears throat> my, dad, my, dad, my dad was a biltong expert and addict, and I remember as a kid, he would... He would have a brown paper bag. This brown paper bag seems to be coming up quite regularly. Um, full of biltong in just the armrest in the middle of the car. Was your dad from South Africa, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was born in um, Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa until um, he was probably mid-late teens, then went to the UK. So biltong, burravorse, which is the South African sausage, which has quite a lot of coriander in it. And, and just the comment on... You've somehow sparked a memory of an old advertising campaign for a type of chips. I think they were called Willard's Crinkle Cuts. And the advert was, Willard's Crinkle Cuts fills your face, fills your face with taste or fills your <laughs> face with flavour. That's I remember brilliant. That. Yeah, I remember. Was that and British yeah. or South African? There was South, yeah, South, South African. Yeah. Oh wow! Fills your face with flavour. Yeah. So you remember that because you travelled over there to see in-laws and outlaws and people like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I so see. there's certain things that remind me the the Willard's uh, crisps, Castle Lager, and a chocolate log. <laughs> okay, I <wouldn't> <laughs> which could be that. metaphorically, it could be on all sorts of things, but it, it was a <laughs> chocolate bar which had, I think, a sort of soft marshmallow with a biscuit base wrapped in chocolate. It was a chocolate log. That sounds good. So my first cream soda was in South Africa as well. The whole biltong thing, I've, I've been to South Africa a few times, I've been lucky enough to, and, and I've tried biltong every time, I, I do not get it. It's, it's, oh. it's sort of a pepperami, right? But 
Yeah, so what is, I've <clears throat> never had it. I've seen it. I'm aware of it. There's a shop not far from me, actually. So it's clearly invaded Britain in a big way. Yeah. But I have never tried it. Oh, I, I love Biltong. What is it? It's dried. It's beef jerky. So it's it's cured, sort of salted dried meat with spices. But it's tough, though, isn't it? It's not. You have so to chew yeah, it. So it's like, tough well, for a while. Not, yeah. Is it tough or is it juicily chewy? Oh, that's a good way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you, yeah, you can't. Uh, my my vague memory of it is I had to chew the dried meat for a long time before it could get to a point where I could yes swallow it. Which you is have to almost sort of generate your own uh, water tap, saliva, yeah. moisture. I mean, when you talk saliva, it doesn't necessarily always sound um, um, most wonderfully gastronomic, but that chewing action generates moisture and makes the food mouth watering. We have dried meat over here in the same way. Do we have anything that's similar to biltong or ham? Ham. We have ham. <laughs> you were very. You were absolute no pause there, James. That was difficult. We well, have I'm thinking that's, that's 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 about as dry as my meat. I, I think yeah. We have so York ham, or you know a leg of cooked ham that we think of that can be served hot or cold in ham sandwiches. Then you've got the Italian version or Spanish versions pastrami or um, parma ham, for example, and that's dried. But then you dry it, the more you dry it, the harder it gets, but the longer it lasts. Where was that place in Italy we went to? You remember you took me, we went there the day after my birthday and you gave me loads of wine the night before and it was just awful because it was a special place up on a hill where they dried pig. Do you remember it? And I couldn't, I could, my, my bless my assistant producer, I had to take over the filming because I couldn't handle going into the room because the smell of it. Do you remember they were doing uh, something? Do we drive up a mountain? Yes. And there was just to get there. Yeah, it, it's outside of. It's not far from pizza. Uh, Culatello. Culatello is a type of Parma ham, and I remember the first time I went there. You're driving along the, the, this coastal road on the left hand side, the way that we drove there. On the left hand side was the sea, and the right hand side was mountains or hills. And then you saw this mountain. It looked like it was covered in snow. But in fact, it was a marble mountain. So the road winds um, um, up the mountain and the road ends in Culatello, in this town where when you park, there's one sort of central parking area and the floor is marble. So when the sun shines, so you need sunglasses, it's just really like glitteringly brilliant reflective marble floor now i just want to pause here one second to tell you about a really cool product that's come on board as one of our sponsors on the podcast here how would you like to hold a little bit of the future in your hand and get paid to do it we've teamed up with a fantastic company called curve and curve is all about simplifying your life and taking control back of your finances with curve you can have all your mastercards and visas boots loyalty cards tesco's loyalty cards etc etc all on one card, which means all your finances are in one place and you can track your entire spending in one app. With all your credit and debit and loyalty cards in one place, Curve boosts your spending power by giving you 1% cash back at your favourite retailers and great exchange rates across all your cards. Plus, the ability to free up some cash by going back in time, where you can basically shift the card you use to pay for things up to 90 days after you did it. Plus, new users get £5 of Curve cash back after their first purchase. And there's no monthly fees, and your cards are still boosted. It's a great offer. As you know, on this podcast, we love trying out brand new things that we think are going to make our life more exciting and more enjoyable and give us a little taste of the future. And that's certainly what Curve is doing. So we really recommend you give this a go and get £5 back after your first purchase when you use your free Curve card. Just go to curve.com forward slash Heston. That's curve.com forward slash Heston to get your card today and get in line for your £5 cash back. Right, let's get back into some service. It was a marble quarry where they also found that marble, the porosity of marble, makes wonderful, let's call them chests or coffins, where they then took back fat from pigs and then cured the fat. So you'd layer these chunks of, of, of pig fat with salt and spices, mainly things like star anise and rosemary and thyme and garlic and peppercorns, and they'd leave them in these vat, in these um, marble cases for maybe six months. 
and the meat would cure. So the byproduct of the marbled mountain um, quarry was actually making, making ham. But the pigs don't live up there. They have to import them in. Incredible, though, isn't it? You wouldn't just how somebody could even figure that out. I imagine it's probably one of those those wonderful accidents that we often discover in the food world when you sort of try and go back and go, how did someone first decide to poach that or cook that there? Yeah, probably another one of those, isn't it? I'd um, love to know. And we'll never know this, but I would love to know. Um, it would be interesting to know how many people through human evolution have died an order so we can eventually buy something from the supermarket and not expect it to kill us. There must have been an awful <laughs> lot of mouthfuls of food that people have gone, oh, what's this like? I'll eat it. <laughs> oh, not the red ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that on that note, that was did you hear that? That was a link. Brace yourself. That was um, this uh, this was uh, this was another correspondence, this time from Garrett Bain. Uh Who's in America? Oh, we're getting no. very international, aren't we now? Journey mm. to the Centre of Food International, mm. like Trotter's Independent Traders. Um, he's Garrett says, a friend, uh, a, f- a friend works for a large food service company here in the States. He has a business dealings with Ed Curry, the breeder of the Carolina Reaper Peppers. So we did a Chili's episode a couple yeah. of weeks ago. We're talking yeah. about the strongest in the world now is the Carolina Reaper. Yeah. Um, he said the U.S. government is the largest customer of the peppers, and apparently the company that makes them is called Curry and Puckerbutt Pepper Company. Just say that again. Who's the largest? Did you say the U.S.? The U.S. government is the, the largest customer of the peppers, so this would be the Carolina Reapers yeah. that Curry and Puckerbutt produce. So do you so, think they use them for food or for tear gas? <laughs> Well, that's a very good Capsaicin. question actually I don't know because when you say the US government doesn't sound like um, they're oh, you're either right. that or they're feeding chili to the army no you're what, right I didn't US question government? that I didn't question I, I thought why. it was just the US but he means the government the right? government yeah oh my goodness well it, yeah I can't believe they're giving loads of Carolina Reapers to all the people who are in the army that's <laughs> if you army say marches states, on its stomach you know, certainly run on that the is the biggest consumer of uh, burgers or hot dogs or pretzels, for example. Yes, but the U.S. government. Yeah, he says he's not a, sure how he feels about that as an American citizen. So that, yeah, that must be it. I'd love oh, to well, know more. Ooh, have you ever tried? Mm. <laughs> have you ever tried tear gas? <laughs> have you ever had a go at tear gas? Yes, once. <laughs> had a go. Had a go with it. <laughs> had a go with once, it. Once at a party somewhere. Funny enough, it was cracked it open. It was South Africa. And it was a New Year's Eve in Cape Point years ago. And it was very comfortable. Everyone was celebrating the car. There were probably people in cars that should not be driving cars. Traffic jams, drinking. They were handing bottles out of the window to passers-by. So it was a big festival. Um, and then for some reason, the um, I don't know if it's the police or the army, decided that it was getting out of hand. But there wasn't really any problem. And then they launched tear gas. So I did have an experience of tear gas. What was and it like? Yes, it, it works. Your Does eyes burn. Your eyes burn and your breathing is, is pretty heavily impaired to the extent that you... It, it, does, it does sort of discombobulate and dysfunction you. So it's the, it it's the only time I've experienced tear gas um, in a tear gas environment, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a restaurant environment all the time, but not... <laughs> Yeah, but it's curious actually. That might what Garrett's saying here might explain why people are breeding these. In, aside from the sort of bragging rights, the idea of yeah. breeding stronger and stronger chilies makes more yeah. sense if you're going to use it to try and you know partially blind people for a short period of time rather than yeah. eating them. Yeah, Goodness exactly. Man, wow, thanks, thanks for that. Um, on a on a slightly different note, um, <laughs> bananas, we, uh, <laughs> bananas. Well, boiled eggs actually. Uh, we obviously do uh, relatively regular flavour pairing episodes where we we uh, try out loads of wonderful, brilliant combinations uh, of different uh, flavours that you guys out there suggest. And we're always asking for these these ideas to come in and any experiences you have, because it's brilliant, because it pushes Heston into new places. But Tal Cowdery uh, was talking about, uh, hello, the three of you, Heston, you've inspired me for years. I'm not a chef, but food and cooking is central value in our family, which is a, a lovely thing to hear. Um Basically, Tal uh, made b- sourdough bread for their eight-year-old, but uh, mm-hmm. they didn't really, didn't really, didn't really like the bread. Spat it out and said it's horrible. Um, but the idea was it was going to be dipped in boiled eggs. But because it, the um, 
their kid wasn't going to eat it. They yeah. had to come up with something else to dip in the boiled eggs. Yeah. Um, so uh, he said he would like uh, slices of apple, and he do- he dunked them into his egg, and apparently it's uh, it's really good, and it married together perfectly. Sliced apple and boiled egg. But it's another one of those ones. It seems I've never tried makes, it. It, it's, it kind of makes sense. I've never yeah. tried it, but there's I, I, I can imagine, because you use eggs, um, eggs. You use apples, for example, if you're wine tasting or... or they use apple slices to sort of cleanse. And egg yolks are wonderfully rich, but they do have a quite a strong, powerful mouth-coating element to them. So I could see how the apple could actually cut the egg. That I like I'm, having I'm, toast I'm, with I'm, marmalade dunking in my egg. That's what I like dunking my egg, was like quite strong marmalade. So maybe it's a really? similar, similar thing. I, I want to try that. I really do. That's great. There we are. Thank you, Tal. There's another one for us to Thank try. You on our various different uh, experiments. And then finally, we have from Miranda Summers, Australia. This is a note from Australia. Wow, we've been around all four corners of the globe today. Uh, a weird flavour combo sandwich I love in Australia is roast chicken, shredded tasty cheese, mayo, pineapple on a toasted sandwich. There we are. That's quite impressive. That's uh, I, but equally- Shredded tasty cheese sticks out for me. What is that? What is that? Yeah. Again, what, what sticks out for you? Shredded tasty cheese. Shredded tasty cheese. I measure that's a type of cheese, so, is it? Yeah, I don't know. Shredded but unless it's just, gr- it's just a grated cheddar, for example, yeah. that's a little bit a- stronger. Shredded tasty so cheese. Could, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it about it, actually, cheese and pineapple... Is, yeah, a, is a very um, classic sort of 70s combo. And then you put yeah. some meat in it. Again, I can... I, uh, I take it, having now Googled the phrase shredded tasty cheese, you can buy Australian shredded tasty cheese in a, in a bag. Ah, maybe, okay. <laughs> it's thing. a thing. It's a thing. There you go. We are I learning mean, yeah. by the second here. <laughs> We're learning by the it. second. I remember once Thank my you. parents didn't have dinner parties very often, but they always still stuck in my mind as a kid because they were sort of special sort of time when you're about to go to bed in your pyjamas and you're poking around yeah, but the house yeah, isn't yeah. as it normally is. And my mum once made an awfully exotic, it was like a, um, it was tinfoil in a, in a sort of half half moon yeah. with cheese and pineapple stuck in it on cocktail sticks all over it, like some kind of hedgehog. It was very exotic. Ah, so the pineapple, you know, is it like those oasis sponges where you stick your flowers into? Did she yes. use the crushed up pineapple, the crushed up tinfoil as a sort of, the base to stick your cocktail sticks in. Yeah, yeah. Ah, cool. <laughs> so you don't need, uh, eating the tin foil might be a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Have you tried that? It's really weird when it touches your oh, feelings. Oh, no, I can imagine it. Oh, it's really painful. I have, um, when pe- and the more I try not to think about it, the worse it gets. There are s- some people, my missus does it sometimes, when they eat where they will drag the fork through their teeth so they oh, have yeah. the scraping noise. Ooh. And when I try not listen to it, it gets loud, it gets, it gets stronger, and it's, it feels like my teeth are watering, which doesn't actually make mm. sense. But it, and I remember Gary, my old head chef, he would do this to annoy me. So if we got tired in the kitchen, he'd just get a fork and he'd start doing this. And then I discovered oh. the noise for him was you know if when you uh, you buy a box of eggs like a like a if this is a a trade box of eggs so there's a sheet of 34 36 eggs on this sort of conical gray trays and you normally get six trays in a box when you pick that tray of eggs out of the box the cardboard of the of the the gray egg tray scrapes about against the vertical cardboard wall of the box and that noise Gary could not deal with. So we'd have these moments in the kitchen where he'd be walking around scraping <laughs> scraping the fork from his mouth and I'd find a cheese, a, 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 an egg box and just be scraping cardboard and we'd both be sort of screaming and mouth-watering and shivering at the same time. God, I'd love to know what the diners were thinking at this point. You were probably doing some subliminal thing on there. Multi-sensory, yeah. it's multi-sensory. <laughs> oh, the Michelin guide there going, oh, it's very clever, this place. It's Give another one. You, things you do when you're exhausted. I do also remember one evening, I, I'm, I've just remembered this, and maybe I shouldn't be saying it. It's a little bit shameful, but hey, this, it is what it Safe is. Safe space. After we'd finished service, and we were cleaning up, and we, we were exhausted, and we had these green tubs of olives. So the tubs were sort of 
just what volume? Uh, probably, I don't know, three, four, five litre tubs. But they're empty, so you'd use those tubs for storage, and if you wanted to wash, you'd put hot water with your you know, soap suds in it for cleaning parts of the kitchen. Anyway, realise that if you put your head in the empty tub and you say, I have you now, you <laughs> sound like Darth Vader. Right. So we were instructing each other which bits of the kitchen to clean up, using talking to each other through empty green plastic olive boxes. <laughs> and this is when we had the, the outside toilet. And I remember a customer walking by, looking into the kitchen. <laughs> and when you just get caught on the act and you think, how do I explain this? Or do I even bother? It, uh, just go, oh, it's a kitchen uh, technique. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very I have you now. <laughs> well, on well, brace yourself. Here comes another link now. Um, on that note of mm. of customers in the restaurant, today's subject on the podcast. We're not delving into a food this time. We are delving into the the service of food away from the kitchen and how. You as a diner are presented with your food, the interaction, the human or lack of human interaction when it comes to serving. And I thought to begin with, there's a phrase that you've said, which I know has you know, been, been people have shared this before, but it's worth you expanding on it to begin with, which is you've said before a number of times, sometimes on this podcast, that service can be more important than the food. Um, yes. Can you just to begin with expand Explain. on that? Yeah. Um, from a restaurant point of view, uh, um, you could have the, a, a kitchen that is in flow, in service. The food comes out as is plan as it planned uh, is planned to come out. Uh, you season it in the way that it's all planned. Everything's fitting to your planned service. Timings, everything, the way it's plated up, the temperature of the meat and the sauce, etc., etc. Um, but. You only need to have a, uh, an interaction between the front of house and, and the, the diner that maybe is, let's call it, I don't know, grating, antagonistic, intrusive, overly disruptive or interruptive. And that food, it will affect the flavor perception and appreciation of the food. So in that way, um, an inhuman service um, can mess up the food however let's say the kitchen overcooks a piece of meat or a piece of fish or they drop a plate and have to redo it again that's not ideal in service however the front of house team have the ability to turn a let's say a, a, a messed up plate of food or a slightly problematical service issue from the kitchen's point of view they can turn that into a more positive situation than if there wasn't a problem at all. But it's much harder for the chefs to use food to overcome inhuman or rude service. So this is where we, you know, you might go back to Forty Towers. Where, <laughs> you know, uh, you could just, for those of you that do remember or have seen Forty Towers, it doesn't matter what the food is served when you've got basil 40 with his finger across his nostrils doing a you know doing the that big walk or being rude just being rude or hitting a waiter on the forehead with a teaspoon in front of the guest unless that was the planned concept of the restaurant i would say it might be slightly intrusive so in that way yes it's human connection and the fact that food has this ability to connect us with ourselves and each other. So the importance of how the staff interact, how they are, how they, how relaxed they are in the dining room, how the more robotic they become. Yeah, there's some restaurants you go to where you cannot have a conversation without somebody coming to the table and pointing their finger at every part of your dish, telling you what you're eating. And you might just be disclosing something really intimate with a close friend doesn't matter. I've started, so I'll finish. Here is your da-da-da. Here is your da-da-da. And so every time you start the conversation, you have an interruption. So it's a very important, complex thing that I think is so relevant to uh, what we've gone through now with COVID. And James told me, I'll, I'll let James say this, but I thought it was a really interesting thing. People are missing. They're even missing annoying things. <laughs> in terms of 
um, just those little interruptions or daily on in daily life from everything from the person that bumps into you on a on a on the stairs of a tube, you know, yeah. as you're rushing for your train, or or the person that you buy your newspaper off, or, or or the person that jumps in front of a queue at Starbucks or whatever and annoys you. People seem to be missing every kind of of human interaction, yeah. whether it be good or bad. Yeah, because we just haven't seen anyone for so long in that way. Exactly, and so it's 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 a really it's a really interesting time. For, for, for you know for, for socialising and for hospitality in general, or what it means to people to be out and about amongst other people. Give and that's a bit of context why, what, here for for the the way service works that I've experienced at the Fat Duck. Now I'm obviously as you know yeah. a bit of a philistine when it comes to food, and my, my majority of my experience of fine dining has been with you in different places. But it's I wanted to just share briefly my experience of the Fat Duck and what it was like so that you can then expand on the journey that you got to get to this place because as you said often going into a fancy restaurant and you don't get much fancier and I know it's not a fancy place but you don't get much fancier than a three Michelin star place and the intimidation you expect to feel is punctured yep. literally the moment the door opens there's an immaculately tailored chap there but he's always meeting you with a smile like he's your long lost friend you feel so put at ease and then yep. the whole dining experience which again is I've described as a sort of theme park for the senses every dish is challenging in wonderful ways but it's still something where you, you, your body and your mind really have to be engaged to be able to accept it and and the service there is done it's like someone taking you by the hand on a on an adventure it's such a pleasant experience the person is is sort of appears and disappears almost by magic they're so lovely you feel like all their attention and all their care is on you and all your but you're decisions the, yeah, you're, are right. you're the only person or the most important person in in the world or maybe people that you love and care about at the table are the most important person and you're observing that. So and nothing you, you ask could be stupid. <clears throat> nothing you feel no, is wrong. No. It's all done with a... And they're not obsequious in the slightest. It's all done with a smile and a bit of a joke. And it's just the most... It, it, it makes the dining experience literally 100% better because they take you through this experience. How did you get service to that point because you tend to think as as a layman of of service in in fancy restaurants being a chef shouting at a snooty guy who don't like each other and who like you say puts things down and looks down their nose at people when did you first start looking at this as a key part of the whole process there wasn't there wasn't one moment but it's gone on for this process has taken 20 25 years since the beginning of the duck and i know that Traditionally, it is quite common for there to be a, a sort of war, an emotional disconnect, or um, maybe, I don't know, you, there's many ways of saying this, maybe a lack of respect or competition between the kitchen and the front of house. So the kitchen will think the front of house, they, they get in the way of their prep. And, and when they come with, a, with an order, it's actually, <laughs> they're forgetting there's a customer sitting there and who's chosen something excitedly to eat and they bring they bring it to the kitchen and the chef thinks leave me alone this is getting in the way of my prep <laughs> now while we're talking about service and the importance of looking the part front of house we wanted to tell you about one of our sponsors they are called manscaped and they're here to make sure that gentlemen we are looking good below the waistline as much as we are looking good above it and after all our days in lockdown it feels the perfect time to plug in with this product manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game the perfect package 3.0 kit comes with the essential lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your grooming routine this is the best trimmer on the market for those in need of a shave basically anywhere Also inside the perfect package, you're going to get the Manscaped Crop Preserver deodorant and an anti-chafing deodorant and a moisturiser. All designed to make you feel comfortable all day long, wherever you're working, in or out of the kitchens. For limited time, subscribers also get two free gifts, the shared travel bag and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers Sounds great. So to get 20% off and free shipping, just use the code HESTON at Manscaped.com. Dot com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code Heston at manscaped.com. Right, let's get back to the front of house. This is something I never really understood. If you were going to serve um, something with an ice cream, a dessert, it goes to the table or it goes to, let's say in our case, this thing called a gerudon, which is like a, uh, is a table in the dining room that the go- food goes from the kitchen to this table and then goes from the table 
from that table to the diner's table. Obviously, before that food comes, you need to make sure that the cutlery is there in place and if they're going to have a particular wine or drink with it, everything's done and prepped. So for some reason, maybe there was a little bit of a delay. Maybe the, they've, somebody forgot to put a fork on the table, so they try and address that balance and the food might sit on the Geridon. If it's sat there for two or three minutes, if you've worked so hard to get the texture of ice cream, and we monitor the temperature and amount of steps it takes to get to the table, because obviously if you want the ice cream at a certain consistency, if you leave it out in a warm room, eventually it's going to melt. So if that happens, you want the team to bring the food back to the kitchen and say, chef, the ice cream's melted. Now, historically, many chefs would then scream at the front of house person instead of giving them a hug because they're protecting all their work and, and it's teamwork. So the, kitchen, the front of house think the chefs are arrogant and the chefs think the front of house are plate carriers. And so you have this unhealthy competition. So it sort of started from there. Then a lot of this is also about reflection. What were the things that were driving me? And a lot of them were connected to my emotions and my memories and obviously the whole multi-sensory thing the idea that you, you apply a sound or a smell to trigger, trigger a memory and put you into a wonderful moment past or present in your life I realized that I was using food as an object it's like a, if you think about uh, a book a fairy tale now obviously if you know the story then then it it comes alive but if you've not read the story yet it's a book and that story only comes alive with human interactions the same with the dishes the dish is the dish it's like a piece of art the emotional connection happens when the human being connects with the food and maybe the other people around them be it their friends on the table or the front of house stuff so I'm looking back on this from the sound of the sea to, the, to, the, to the, the menu at the Fat Duck, which is a map and a journey of moments of an imaginary day's holiday of me as a kid and the stuff that we've done on, on all the TV shows. So picnics and barbecues, these are objects. If you see a Christmas tea on a, a tree on a table, it's an object that might be, have food connection to it. We'll all recognize the object, but we'll also have our own intimate emotional connection with that object that we could then share with others around the table. So as I started to get more clarity that this is one of my driving forces, using food as storytelling, that the storytelling around the food became more important, which wasn't really necessarily that helpful to the front of house staff because that's not the stuff you're trained at hotel school. So how do you live the story in a human way that doesn't come across as judgmental. Not that, you know, this is our so-and-so, when you taste it, you will discover that it's like this. No, 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 it's about discovery. And maybe discovering something new about your relationship with the food that you eat and the people around you in the process. So you have to try and remove the feeling of being judged or the feeling that somehow you're in a temple. And if you don't like this, then you don't know what you're talking about. It's your own likes or dislikes. So that, that has changed a lot over the years, but it's a continual uh, thread that runs through everything I do is storytelling. And in fact, that's what we are. We're human beings are storytellers. That makes more sense because one of the things I was... is exactly that. When, they, when they're with you, they are taking you on a journey and a story. And I was curious about how you... Because obviously people travel from all around the world to the Fat Duck. And having yeah. been to different countries... The, the level of service or the style of service you expect in North America, for example, like mm. my friend works there as a manager and he said they have to give you a first bite. Te- so it, when you eat something, they're supposed to come up to you after your first bite and go, how was that? And it feels like they're angling for a, a tip or something. It's very different to us as Brits. So I was thinking, but over yeah. there it's expected. And I was wondering how you got around that when you have a dining table or a dining room where you could have people from Japan, people from South Africa, people from America. But actually, if you're telling them a story, that's a universal thing. It's not necessarily a, a, something where you have to alter your approach depending where the people come from. It, it, it's true. And I think, <clears throat> obviously, you just touched on it. Then there's, there's, you have to sort of, uh, you might interpret a cultural response in a different country as something that might be a little bit arresting or interrupt, interruptive. And for me, or disruptive, when I, I'm, but this is me, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. 
I don't feel comfortable being asked, how was that for me? And the idea that if I have, I don't have to eat my whole plate full of food, I could have one mouthful and it could be so precious and so amazing. Maybe I could just sit with myself with that. I don't have to tell you if I liked it or not. Now, I know the intention behind that question can be very um, positive. However, you do run the risk of putting somebody in the spotlight. I've come for dinner, I will eat this food. Don't ask me if I like it or not. I'll tell you if there's a problem. If I can try and make your uh, experience as free and open as possible, because our relationship with food is very complex. Sometimes we eat because we want to escape, because we're hungry. Sometimes we finish our plate of food because we feel guilty. We don't want to upset somebody. So there's many complex emotional connections when we eat food. So I've I've, been, I've had this idea for a while now, and I'm going to put it on um, the darkened dinner. And it's the option. I think it's even more relevant now, post-COVID. I love the idea that you could choose an interrupted or uninterrupted menu. And you could change. So let's say, I mean, um, this is still a work in progress, by the way. But you've decided, because you might be on a business meeting or a romantic dinner, or you might be on a food adventure that you want to be interrupted. So you say, okay, I'd like an uninterrupted menu, please. So they'll come, you'll order the wine. <clears throat> the idea is you pour the glass of wine. You said, yes, I like the wine, whatever. And then they leave the bottle on the table. When the food gets put down, they'll just make sure you've got the right plate of food effectively. Leave you to it. Then you might realize, actually, I want some interruption, please. So then you can ask, for, so an interrupted menu will be much more verbally connected to the storytelling and the information behind the dish and the work that's got involved in it and how much 20 years of research to find this farmer that's made a particular thing. There's so much information that's there, but maybe you don't want to be talked at through your meal. So you can, ch you can choose to turn up or turn down your interruption because you might decide, actually... I'm in a really difficult moment at this table, this business meeting, and there's this stony silence. Please. Press the button. <laughs> Quick, interrupt help. me. Come on, interrupt me. <laughs> Tell me what I so, think. Ask me how I, I like it. it. Yeah, and then the staff could be more playful about it. And then if the, you can say, well, I've decided, no, a bit more interruption. Can you please leave me alone? But without feeling guilty, you don't really want to sound like a, most people don't, some people don't have, have less of a problem than this than others, but you don't, for me, I want to sound like some miserable old git that's, not, that's actually not being respectful enough to the staff as well because it, it has a, a, a knock-on effect, um, cause and effect on that interaction between humans. So the idea, the plan is an interrupted or uninterrupted menu or, or a, a, like a graphic equaliser. So I think something that's really interesting, as we're talking, you know, it sounds yeah. negative, but you tend to notice service by the bad experiences or things that don't work and when it works well you don't even notice i'm just i'm, I'm right across the spectrum yeah. i'm thinking of when you go into a cafe right there'll yeah. be and everyone will be different as well but there'll be a level of annoyance where if you're making me a coffee i'd love you to say hello and be nice but i don't want you to crash and bang with a coffee machine for about 16 hours faffing around doing stuff that takes half an hour for me to get a coffee but if you get that just right, it feels like you're paying attention. And it's incredibly fine margins. in And I imagine everyone's slightly different in the way they no, like things. There's a real things. psychology to it. There really is a psychology of awareness trying to read people. When somebody, even down to, a, for example, the wine list. Somebody opens a wine list and says, oh, I was thinking of this bottle, but what do you think? Now, oh, they a might minefield. be saying, <laughs> oh, they might be saying, I like Rhone, Cote de Rhone. What do you think? Or they might be they might be using that to highlight the price bracket that they're looking at. It's that one, mate. It's always that one. It's like, <laughs> what's the cheapest you have, but not the cheapest? It tastes just like this one. But, and, and, it tastes uh, like this one at the so bottom. So there's so much. You know, a corked wine is another one. If somebody says my wine is corked, um, the sommelier tastes the wine. They would taste the wine before they pour it. This is at the duck. They'll check it. But the idea of checking it is not to tell you if you're right or wrong. If they think it's corked, then it won't go to the table. So there's a little taste. Then uh, they can do this in front of you or not. Then you have the wine. Now, if somebody says my wine is corked, for me, 
the worst thing you could do is say, actually, it's not. <laughs> yeah, get out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what do you do? Well, <laughs> this is one example. You say, well, take the wine away and say, you can, we can give you another bottle, but it might be the same. We don't know. Or maybe it, you might want to think about ordering an, a different wine. We don't charge them for the wine. If the wine is corked, it will go back to the supplier. But then what you do is you put a vacuum seal on the wine and you walk and offer the wine by the glass. So the, so the customer is not being made to feel that they're, 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 they don't know what they're talking about. They're not being charged for an extra bottle. Extra they get the freedom of having another go or the same again. Um, but there's many little things like this all the way through the meal that can... It's like waiting, for, for me, waiting for the bill. You know, I like a flurry, but towards the end of the meal, if you think you're getting tired, and sometimes yeah. it happens the restaurants get really busy, and then you've oh, finished, you wait for you half want an to hour go. for your bill. Feels yes. like, it feels like forever, waiting like, for the bill. Can we please have... Yeah, and you're doing yeah, that I'm, hand I'm signal generally. to pay, and then you think, I stuff this, I'm going to walk out without paying. That will show them. <laughs> but just that thought means your experience is much more, um, much less comfortable. Or when they wrote write down your order, yeah. when they come to the table and there's six yeah. of you ordering and they memorize it and you're like, oh, come on, you're making me anxious now because you may be really good at this or you may have forgotten everything I've just told you. Please just pretend you're writing it down. But your memories, <laughs> what's hard with writing down what I'm saying? Another question. <laughs> would you like a written down menu or would you like us to test our memory? Well, it's, a, well, it's like, an, is, it, is it Wagamama's where they literally just write it on the tablecloth in front I of you? I quite like that. It's quite yeah. reassuring. At least <laughs> I know they've got the order right. Well, it works, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you've got the right person with the right dish. All you have to do is match them up when you bring them over. I yeah. just think that's quite just, a fail-safe. It doesn't work, obviously, everywhere. Again, it wouldn't be appropriate in many restaurants, but, it, it, but for, for certain places, it's, It's a you good know. example because, you know, some people, for me, uh, wouldn't be something that bothers me. But if somebody is aware was, where they're taking their menu, there's a table of six, maybe there's one no starter, there's two vegetarians, one vegan, a couple of fish, somebody wants fish for dessert, etc., etc. <laughs> And then the the staff are nodding and you're thinking, are you Did taking you all this in? <laughs> and it's irrelevant if they do or they don't. If you think they're not taking it in, it creates uncomfortableness. It creates a, a, um, a slight anxiety. I used to love, when I was younger, if I go to a smart restaurant or a restaurant, I'd love perusing the wine list, working out what I'm going to spend, how I'm going to drink it. I just... The whole plot of my menu. Now, I just want to get all that done, hand the menu back, and then I can kind of go, ah, give it to me. Now that's it. Now I'm ready. There's something so no. reassuring when someone does it. You do that. It's brilliant. You, you do, you'll order for us all and sort of just get, get bits and bobs. And it's so relaxing because you don't have to suddenly get... I, I suffer from menu blindness, which I think is an actual condition, where you look at the menu and you can't decide and you can't read it because you're trying to have a chat with your friends and you're trying to have yeah. a drink and you're trying to look around the place yeah. and they come over and what do you want? I'm like, oh, God, I'm, uh, I, uh, oh, I don't know now. Uh, something. And you just go, oh, you end have up you reverting to have type. You- have you had that thing before when you're in a restaurant with some friends or colleagues and you're not sure what to order and you're thinking you're waiting for somebody else to order and then the, the, somebody else on your table might order three dishes, start a main dessert. You think, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> but you've looked at the menu yourself and you can't make the decision. But somehow, because somebody else does it for you, you're then jealous. I want that. I want that. But no, I need to be different. But you're one of those people that says, "What do you? I don't know what to have. What are you having?" I'm like, "Well, how does that make any difference? <laughs> what you want?" Yes, exactly. The psychology <laughs> behind it. I mean, it's part of the beauty of, you know, the, the complexities and the beauties of restaurants. And as you said at the duck, you know, we've um, consciously now trying to apply um, the hero's journey, which is to me is an incredible thing. Like you know, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution came about because he spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours observing plants and and animal life or insect life whatever and then finding connections it's incredible ability of human beings well joseph campbell in the 70s did the same thing with stories so he read uh the bible homer the quran fairy tales 
incredible. It's incredible. Um, uh, achievement, I think, what he did. He read all these great stories and then found a pattern or a similarity between these stories. And his point was the reason why these stories can be so, let's say, popular or by read by so many people over the years is because we're all on our own hero's journey. And, and the basic premise is you're minding your own business. You could be walking to school or you could be just, just sitting there and like, like now, you and I, I can see you're, you're sitting there, your door's closed behind you, and then there's a ring on the doorbell. And that sets you off onto an adventure. So you then start the adventure, and there's normally a nasty person, a bad person on the way, and at some point in that adventure, you need to, what they call, slay the dragon. So metaphorically, it's, you, you slay your dragon, which is your own insecurities, for example. And... You can see this in Star Wars, where Luke Skywalker, when he cuts off um, um, Darth Vader's head, rolls on the floor, it's actually Luke Skywalker's head. Batman, the Joker is Batman, it's the shadow of Batman. And these are metaphors. So once you've then discovered something new about yourself, you then try and integrate that into your new perspective. And then you want to try and tell, tell others about what you've discovered. That kind of, and it's broken down into different sections. So they, we were trying to, so we spent a few years doing this, trying to sort of apply the hero's journey to the fat duck menu, map experience. It's been complicated. Um, but th that started when we came back from Australia, um, I had um, a friend of mine came to Bray's, amazing scriptwriter. He wrote Billy Elliot, um, uh, did the Elton John movie, Lee Hall, his name is. And I said, we were trying to find a way to connect these, because the dishes are stories and connected with memories. And he looked at the menu and he said, well, to me, it looks like you've got most of the components of a day here. You've got breakfast, you've got you've, the beach, you've got a sweet shop, you've got counting sheep, You've got these things, and all Shakespeare's or nearly all of his plays were written over the course of the day from morning to night. So the menu, instead of being a starter, main course, and dessert, it actually is a map that you go, you, a map of a day's holiday as a kid, from waking up and having breakfast to going down to the, having a day on the beach or eating ice cream cones from an ice cream van or a walk in the woods, etc. We know that a lot of you guys out, well, obviously everyone out there listening is a diner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But we've got a lot of guys that are listening who are chefs and also front of house. It'd be fascinating if you could get in touch with us to let us know all your thoughts on service and your experiences and what does and doesn't work for you. It's yeah. at Heston's Podcast on Instagram and Heston's Podcast at gmail.com. And while you're there, do us a favour, do subscribe and post nice comments about us or nasty ones if you want. We do read them and take them on board. So thank you ever so much for coming on this oh, Jay, journey with us. On that note... So, um, anyone listening, if you have a Basil Fawlty um, story about an experience and service that you've had that could be on a comedy show, I'd love to hear it. I remember a very uh, a good old friend of mine getting married, uh, and I was his best man. This is years ago in, in the States. And the night before, we all went out, both the women and men, big table in, this, in, this, in Boston it was, and it was a disaster. Everyone's food came at a different time. It was overcooked and undercooked and cold. And you could see that there were people at the table getting more frustrated. And eventually, this woman's food came and, she, and, and they left her to last. It arrived and she said, my fish is so overcooked. And the woman said, have you tried it in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. So if anyone's got any... Any uh, funny, either impressive from, from you know, the, the point of view of uh, somebody in a restaurant turning a disaster into something amazing or just something going wrong. Just, I I'm love sure it. I there's think, a lot of Do you remember Wonkies in Chinatown in London where they were, it was legendary because they were rude to you? I don't think they were intentionally rude to you, but they must have started to realise it after a while. That that's why people went there. But I've often thought I love the idea of going to a restaurant where the front of house are deliberately rude to you, like fantastically so, in a way that is perfectly entertaining when you uh, choose yes. your dinner and they go, idiot. <laughs> if that's part of the concept, you can see it can work. It's be like really good fun. To, I'm going to go to a restaurant where I'm thinking I can order my, let's say it's Chinese, I can order my chop suey or I can order my 
um, yeah. my ribs or dumplings. But the chef might decide to put a whole raw banana on top of the chicken <laughs> just because he can. <laughs> and so there would be almost a Russian roulette. You're leaving it up to the kitchen, but you know that that could happen. I'm not suggesting for one minute that it is going to be a groundbreaking rollout <laughs> restaurant concept. However, if you're aware, I'm going to this restaurant, be careful because they could be so, they might cut your tie off. Yeah, who knows? Well, they tell you to go and stand in the naughty corner. It would be such a laugh, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I was, a, in my early sort of early student days, I was working back in the West Country in an old country house hotel, which was very reminiscent of Faulty Towers. We had, the woman in charge, we had very few guests. The woman in charge was completely mad as a box of frogs and also liked a drop or two, so never really dropped below full on the sort of petrol gauge of booze. And she <laughs> would just destroy the place. I mean, just it, with complete carnage. And I would be sort of yeah. going around. She made me wear this red jacket. It looked a bit like Manuel. And I was, um, she was a terrible snob as well, which was wonderful, a con- contradiction to everything we were doing so i would go and speak to the guests and you'd end up chatting to them when you were serving them and i obviously i went to the polytechnic in wales for my university university of glamorgan but she was such a snob she'd go around telling everyone i was going to cambridge i says jay he goes to cambridge and i was like no i'm not i'm <laughs> going to poly in wales <laughs> it was just that lovely Brilliant. i love it that juxtaposition of wanting to be posh and then not being posh is just brilliant because Certain, I mean, I'm curious to what you think about places where the service is non-existent. So I'm thinking of some of those cool Japanese places where you order from a digital display on the table or even mm-hmm. fast food restaurants where it's all done remotely. And also in our modern world of Deliveroo and, and, and all the various different yeah, delivery yeah. things now, I wonder if we're going to see an evolution in even down to the presentation of food through a delivery service. If mm-hmm. I wonder how that would change and impact your experience if there was some kind of the moped guy brought some kind of multi-sensory experience as he arrived at the door i mean that'd be quite yeah you order some chopped suey and dumplings and the guy's dressed in a panda suit (laughs) (laughs) just made that up or a or a fez for moroccan food or i don't know just but as a surprise i don't wouldn't it be wonderful or a traffic warden (laughs) i don't know what that would be that food would be i'm curious though because you also have a restaurant in in heathrow don't you the perfectionist Mm -hmm. cafe and as we know with that one of your big drivers has been understanding that customers don't have time they have a certain finite time to eat and otherwise you'll start getting anxious before your your flight leaves yeah yeah. how much was that a factor when you were thinking about how your front of house there worked because you can't be faffing around and forgetting people's bills there massive massive we looked at where the psychology of when you come through security where you see first and, and heathrow had all these figures that people allow for example on average this is this is really big generalization but something like 40 minutes so when they when they've gone through security they've got their so they've gone to boots or they've got the stuff that they need to get they were around 40 minutes or 35 minutes to eat so we need our target was 11 minutes to deliver the food wow and there's the flight times on the wall I wanted to have a buzzer, but I didn't know if that was going to generate more stress, where if your plane was delayed or not, and how far you are from, because I realized people, understandably, can get quite stressed. They're going to the plane, they're not sure what terminal or what gate the plane's going from. Is the gate going to change? And especially nowadays, what tends to happen as we've driven the price of air travel down, Companies like EasyJet and Ryanair, it's ship them in, get them out. So the turnaround, in order to keep the prices low, they get you queuing much earlier. So mm-hmm. the luxury of sort of swanning on the plane whenever you want to. So you often see um, um, boarding, and then it will just go gate closing instantly. Yeah, that's so when a good people, point. people panic. They panic. So you have to try and build these sorts of things into their dining experience because if they start to get a little bit anxious and the bill's not coming, every minute can seem like an hour. So it is an incredibly um, important thing. And for me, the whole beauty, one of the beauties with the Perfectionist Cafe, what I loved about it was that, yes, it's fast food, but it's fast so if you take pizza, for example, or fish and chips, it's, 
it's at its best fast. So the quicker you can cook a pizza, the 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 more kind of authentic, let's say, I don't like using the word better and best, but the more authentic or maybe the more impressive the pizza can be, the li- the, the less time it's cooked. So it's it's fast food. Although there's nothing fast about a pizza if you consider making the dough and building the pizza oven and growing the tomatoes at the bottom of Vesuvius and etc. However, the cooking is fast. Fish and chips, it cooking is fast. That's really clever though, integrating the service principle with the food so that the two make sense together. If you want to luxuriate and take your time as a risotto restaurant, if you want to be really quick, uh, like you say, it's pizza and that makes sense. If you were trying to do it the wrong way around, then there would always be a bit of a grating between the two. Yes, you're sacrificing what you think is the quality or the authenticity of the dish um, by not cooking it quick enough. So for service then, do you think the key is um, comfort? Or is it, it, well, I'm just, I'm curious, all the different stratas we've talked about from, from the very, you know, from a quick cafe through to the three Michelin starred mm-hmm. restaurant, is the key to, what is the key to service being good is it not noticing is it or is it feeling better at what i'm curious about what the what the essence of a good service is i it's human interaction and i think it's the same if you have a let's say you have a i don't know a personal trainer so the the good personal trainers for me are the ones that know they want if you want to be pushed a bit if you don't get a personal trainer that tries to beast the living daylights out of you, you're not going to want to come back. You just look forward to, to well, you don't look forward to your training sessions. They're miserable and you give up. But if you can work out that sometimes you want to be pushed and maybe they'll push you a little bit more, but they'll sense that if you've had enough, they'll all, it's also okay. So you're not feeling like you're the feeling of, of, of shame or failure or not being worthy enough or somehow you don't understand. Um, it, it's comfort. It's, I suppose it's trying to remove the feeling of guilt and judge, judgment or questioning. So the way you ask people questions is also really important because after the food, did you like that? How was that for you? That can put a lot of people... On the back foot, and what am I supposed to say? Do you want me to lie? Do I actually tell you the truth? If I do, what's the consequence? So it's an intrusive or obtrusive question. Whereas if you have a question like, and we've been talking about this a lot, um, if this isn't a something, what is it? So if this is not a restaurant, what is it? I think that's a great question because it's whatever it is to you. And if you know or not, or don't know, or you're interested, or you're not interested, or you change your mind hourly, it's all okay. But questions can, if they're loaded ones, then they've already got answers to them. And sometimes questions without answers are magical. Have you ever worked as a waiter? No, do you know, I never, (laughs) I never, I did once in the early years of the duck, because I saw this French chef's did this. I never came to the dining room. I couldn't do it. I'm so... So much so that I'd had to be the first in and the, fir- and the last out of the restaurant. I remember one, more, one evening, it was like one half one, I was doing the ordering upstairs. There was a table in the restaurant. I didn't want to walk down through the, through the dining room because that was the only way of getting in and out was the restaurant door. So I climbed out the window. <laughs> I was like, there you go. I've just, I've just said that. I've said it. I did it because of my own guilt. That's guilt because I didn't want people, I wanted people to think, yes, Heston's always here. So if you see your chef leaving by the window, it's a good sign. I only, did it. I only did it. I only did it, doing once. it for your benefit. <laughs> but then I, I do remember once coming out. So I did this in the first month and then I gave up from this specific moment. I walked up to a table of four. I was I was exhausted. My chef's wife was covered in food. My knees had gone exhaustion. And I went up to the table thinking I did that, you know say hello, I'm the chef. No one had a clue who I was. I was either a chef, a chef or a badly, uh, a badly run dentist with, with what I was wearing and, the, and the, all the red on my beetroot stains and stuff on my, on my chef's whites. And I stood there, they were in the middle of conversation. And this woman looked up at me and just went, yes. And I wanted the floor to open oh. up and swallow me. Oh. I literally ran away. I said, I've never done it. I've, I never did it. 
If I've done an event where there's an expectation to me to go around the room or I'm doing a little presentation or talk, it's different. But that thing of walking around the table saying, good evening, how, yes. Mm -hmm. The royal wave as you go. Good evening, yeah. And how was that? Well, actually, I didn't really like, oh, thank you very much. And then you go to the next table. It's also like a pilot walking through the plane. You kind of want the chef and the pilot up front making sure things don't crash. That's why. But some... But but some people do, do you know do it do that part of the, the, the chess role very well, don't they? They I mean, do. Some people like John Williams at the Ritz is very famous for that of of being in the dining room with his enormous tock hat, you know, sort of three foot off his head, you know, just strolling through, and, and he's part of the experience. And he can and he make a big revels. He can make that. a big difference to people as well. I remember Paul Bocuse did it. Yeah, I always thought Paul Bocuse was like about eight foot tall, but in fact his hat was seven foot tall. And <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would just have this such a commanding way about him. So people were coming to the restaurant. Were they coming for the food? Or were they coming for Paul Bacuse? And, and uh, normally a mixture of both. So I understand why people might want to see the chef. It's like the, you know, the songwriter coming out for an encore or something you know, with, the, with the team. I can understand that. I just, me, oh my God, I just didn't have... I didn't have the guts to do it. Fear of rejection. <laughs> but the great restaurateurs, is it? like Corbin and King, Jeremy yeah. Corbin once said to me that he would every, because they had, I think at the height, they probably had five or six restaurants yeah. across the West yeah. End and, and London. Yeah. And he would make it part of his day to walk through each dining room during each service. So he would just spend his lunchtime oh, he did. moving between the yeah. restaurants and he would do one trip and see one or two regulars, shake a hand, say yeah. hello, and then be gone out the back door into get in a car or scooter. I don't know how next he got between, he might have run, I don't know. Do the next one. That's what he would Amazing. do twice a day. You know, and that was his. That was the way he he wanted to run his restaurant. Yeah, I mean, it's very you know, impressive. Very impressive. And and I, yeah. when we uh, reopened the Duck, um, and I did this, I read that there's a restaurant in France called Trois Gros, Maison Trois Gros. It's an incredible restaurant, and they, I, I think, maybe changed the face of French gastronomy more than any other restaurant in the last fifty odd years. Um, the, the single biggest thing they did, which was monumental, was before Trois service was the chefs would put food on a, a platter, silver or stainless steel platter, that would be brought to the table, and with a spoon and fork, it was served from that platter to the table. He got rid of that. So now the chefs plated up their own food um, as it left the kitchen and arrived at the table. It, they were in control, so they took control of the kitchen and creativity had such a massive impact many other things that they did but that was probably the biggest one and i remember would they take it to a sorry to would they take it to a table themselves for chef would they carry the no front of house did it but the idea that right right the idea that a chef now we just automatically should assume that in the kitchen chefs cook put food on plates front of house take those plates on or off a tray to the guests but it didn't used to be like that. The chefs would put the food on a platter and then the chefs would take the platter and with a spoon and fork, they would serve, they would serve all the, the, the food off the platter onto a plate. So it made a complete different um, level of control from, 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 you know, from that point of view. But he, um, um, I remember one of the things that I found that, most impressive and I did this for the reopening of the duck and I and I did it until I couldn't travel I was doing it last last with the end of last year every week I'd fly over from France James had to endure most of the times with me and we'd I'd sit in the restaurant and eat notes 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 I'd look at the service I'd taste the food I'd look at the question about the techniques and levels of ingredient and the human interaction the temperature of the room and the lighting of the room and I read that the Tuagro uncle did this, where he sat every single day on his own and ate lunch. Every single day. Because he wanted to feel, he wanted to see the staff, he wanted to eat the food and feel them the cutlery. And I thought, wow, that was really impressive commitment. And I was probably, probably five, seven years before I sat in the fat duck. And I actually dined there. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Now, I mean, obviously, I can't get on a plane at the moment, but 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 weekly, every single week, we'd be there. And then in between that, we'd have Zoom calls where 
It could be drawing and photos of dishes and researching supplies and then tasting and tasting and tasting and then looking at the storytelling and how the words are written on the menu or the little storybook that goes with it and the body language of the staff. It's tiring because there's a lot of things to look to actually look at. But in a funny way, more daily involvement up until this last lockdown um, than, I, than I used to. I might have been in the kitchen for 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, but I didn't want to go in the front of the house. I was too scared. <laughs> well, the good news is, as the, as, the, as the winds of COVID hopefully, possibly, maybe are starting to blow away, the Fat Duck is reopening along with the rest of the restaurant world and we can start to enjoy service once again. But I'm afraid in terms of this podcast, we're starting to turn the lights off now and the cleaners are coming in and Heston needs to jump out the window because we have Chairs run out of time. It's when you can smell the bleach from the kitchen while you're still eating a dessert. It's not good. Turn the lights on. Turn the mic off. Chairs upside down. Cabs outside. Can I get you anything else, sir? Yeah, we better go. <laughs> On that note, James, thank you ever so much for being with us. And Heston, Pleasure. that was a wonderful voyage inside the world of service. Thank you ever so much. Thank Until you, next chaps. Time. And thank you, listeners. I can't wait. I'm so I get so excited about what 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 you are going to disclose to me next week from uh, <laughs> listeners' feedback or thoughts. I love it. Take care, guys. <laughs>